Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of Ephesians. It's my joy to continue to preach through this wonderful letter God ordained to be in the Holy Canon of Scripture. Today we'll be in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. As Marilyn mentioned earlier, uh, we have uh, uh, papers in the back that you take notes on. And my prayer is always that our time in God's Word would be a catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week. That in no way would you feel full and sufficient based on just our time together for this hour, but to, but to be constantly at the feet of Jesus, constantly hearing from your good God and studying his word. And this would just uh, stir in you for more of that throughout the week. Um, I want to read verse 16 through 18 as we dig in this morning, just to give us a little bit of context for where we're going to be focusing in verse 17 and 18. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Here in verse 16, we are reminded of where we were last week as we looked at these wonderful blessings we have in the Lord. And Paul talks about uh, the operation of the saints and, and that we're thankful, that we're praying. Um, and, and so he's giving thanks. He's praying for the saints. And in verse 17 and beyond is really what he's praying for and so today and next week we'll we'll move into the heart of these things that paul's praying for for the saints that he's writing to in this region of ephesus and as we do that we're going to see some important parts of what it means to to know our good god i'm really excited for what he has for each of you today It's been a a really great week of study for me and a lot of fruit from our first hour time together. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Let's pause there. Here we read that Paul is praying to God the Father. Uh, He's going to ask God to give the saints a number of important things for their journey in life. Let me first remind us that as Christians, we pray Trinitarian prayers, meaning we pray to God the Father through the mediation and power of God the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Paul is rightly going to God, um, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he references him, the Father of glory. When the holiness of God is on display, it is his glory. Think about this. He is God. He is Father, meaning he's family. For those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, born again, We're restored to Him. We're adopted as His kids, His eternal family. He's personal. When you go to God in prayer, you're praying to the Father, our Father, 
who art in heaven. Paul's emphasis here that he's the father of glory is also helpful insight into who we're praying to, that he is full of glory. He's set apart. He's like nothing else in creation. He's worthy of all adoration and and respect and praise. He is God. He always has been, He is, and He always will be. Perfect and holy. And all of creation is made by Him and for Him. For His eternal glory we exist. The glory of God is a phrase we say a lot, church circles, the glory of God. But what is it? What is the glory of God? A way to understand His glory is it's the holiness of God put on display. It's the infinite worth of God made manifest to be seen and enjoyed, praised. Isaiah 6.3 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When the holiness of God fills the earth and people see it and savor it, it's called glory. Holy means set apart from what is common. And speaking of God's glory, His infinite value shines. His set-apartness. God's glory is the the radiance of His holiness. The outstreaming of His infinite value. This is who Paul has in sight as he goes to Him in prayer. The Father of glory. I want to ask you to slow and consider with me this morning. When you go to God in prayer, is there a right reverence and awe of God, the Father of glory. He's Father, so He's not foreign. It's not like walking into the chambers of a foreign dignitary. Or There's a personal connection. We should be at home with Him, but He's also the Father of glory, the power of God, the, the, the majesty of God is present. And so do we have that in view rightly? Just like our children can be guilty of running into an adult conversation or into the room and selfishly just throwing out their childlike demands on us as parents, I think we can be guilty of running into the throne room of God and throwing our demands on His lap and running out and missing what it is to interact with and to be in awe of the Lord of glory. Beloved, what does it look like to grow in your awe and reverence of God? Consider with me for a moment before we move on the fuller context of this passage in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is given view of the throne room of God, the Lamb of God. And just just as another way to stir and remind our souls of the, the power and the wonder of God. As the seraphim is described in this passage these winged beings with eyes all over even the awe that those that God has created to be in his presence brings us great awe and maybe even a righteous kind of fear 
Let us remember that those are still the creation of God, that we should not be more in awe of the creation of God than of God himself, that those point us to the awe and wonder we have for God. Listen, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, two With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Church, do we have a righteous and reverent approach to God Almighty? who is holy and fills all creation with the radiance of His glory. Again, let us not lose sight of the fact that He's Father, He's personal. It's our beloved Heavenly Father, church, who loves us, who chose us, as Paul's been focused on that in the earlier verses of this chapter, protects us and keeps us forever. Do you feel loved and personally close to Him as you go to Him in prayer? Can I say that if you're struggling to feel that or know that, it's not because of Him, but because of you. Because of a lack of knowing who He is and and how He feels about you, what He's done to make you His. We are His beloved, redeemed kids, church. He sees Christ's perfection on you and He calls it righteous. And He he says with you He's well pleased because of the work of another. You are a saint in Christ. As Paul's mentioned numerous times in the early parts of this letter, you're a child of the living God. He is our Father of glory. He is the one to whom we pray. Listen to the way Paul describes the Father of glory in the very famous end of chapter 11 of Romans. Verse 33 through 36. He's so moved. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I don't don't have time to exegete this passage although I always want to just quickly oh there is not passing fodder it's it's not worth it no no he's like he's moved oh he's overcome he's overwhelmed by the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God He says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, see with me who Paul is thinking of when he goes to prayer for the saints. So when Paul says, God is the Father of glory, he's saying that He is the source of all good things. God has prepared for us in glory. All the things that Paul is about to pray for, for the saints to know, to know they have in Christ, that they have it because they belong to God, because the Father of glory has set out a plan and He will see it through. He is wise in all that he does. Paul starts by praying that the saints know the wisdom of God and that they grow, therefore, in knowing God himself. This is where Paul goes next in the beginning of his request to the Father of glory. Look with me. He prays that the Father of glory may, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. An important first clarity here. The Spirit of Wisdom, capital S Spirit, is not a state of wisdom. He's not praying for a state of wisdom for the saints, his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, that one might have or gain. No, no, it is the person of the Holy Spirit who is God, and therefore, who is wisdom. Wisdom is an eternal attribute of who God is. Meaning, for all eternity, God has been, is, and always will be perfectly wise. Definition of the wisdom of God as an attribute is, is well said this way. God is eternally wise. The source of all wisdom. God possesses wisdom perfectly and has decidedly ordained all things perfectly, including the best way to accomplish His decisions. The wisdom of God is manifest in His creating, ordering, providence in, and governing of all things. Is God sound? in all of his decisions and decrees. Absolutely. Why? Because God is truth, and he knows all things. Therefore, God is sound in every action or decision based on perfect knowledge and truth. He's spot on every time. When you trust in God, you're trusting in His perfect wisdom. You're not trusting in Him the same way you trust in another person who's very imperfect in their wisdom and knowledge of truth. Church, we need to have a different trust for the perfect, holy, wise God. There is no one wise like God. 
listen to Paul's words in, to the Corinthians in his first letter. 1 Corinthians 2, it's a longer passage I want to read, 6 through 14. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So see clearly, the wisdom that Paul is praying for, the wisdom he's speaking about here to the Corinthians, is not wisdom like people are wise in their own learning in the modern day among the leaders and, and, and the educators of our land. No, it's wisdom that's perfectly found in God. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The, the wisdom, church, we want and need is not the wisdom of this age. This age is doomed and is passing away, Paul rightly reminds his hearers. Instead, it is the wisdom of God. Perfect in God and decreed before the ages for our glory. So amazing that no one could even imagine it, he says. Can I ask you, can I lovingly challenge you, as you think about your days and the ways you spend your time, are you caught up in keeping up with or growing in the wisdom of this age? You're very plugged into the news and reading authors and, and growing in, in education. Not that some of those things are not good in the horizontal, but I want you to consider that, per, that pursuit of wisdom in comparison to your fervor and your pursuit of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is far and above the wisdom of this age. And so church, not that we put away those pursuits, but are they rightly ordered? Should there be a repentance unto more time to study the Word of God and be discipled in the truths of God? In this Corinthians passage, chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, God has revealed His wisdom 
to us through the Holy Spirit. This is what he's praying for the saints to have in verse 17 of our passage in Ephesians. May the Lord of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul also helps us see that the revelation that we're given in the Spirit, as referenced in our verse, is not new revelation, knowledge about future events. The Scriptures are clear that the canon is closed. The Word of God is is here in His written Word. There's not new revelation being given to, um, to man like He did in His perfect ways through the prophets and then through the capital A apostles. That any extra biblical charismatic teaching that there's new words from God coming stands in opposition to what the Scriptures teach. That the Scriptures are enough and clear and complete for every good work that we would have. So this revelation is not a new revelation. It, it, is, it is not prophetic in that way, but it is an illumination of God's wisdom that all believers have access to in the Spirit. Please recognize that the knowledge of Him is also not knowledge just about Him. You can know a lot about someone and not know that person. No, what he's praying very specifically for is that knowing him personally. Because of our redemption and justification in Christ alone, we now know God. We know him personally. We were rightly separated from God's holiness because of our sin. In Christ, when His perfection is laid upon us and He pays and takes on the wrath due our sin, we are restored, reconciled to God. And now we know Him personally. His Holy Spirit, as we talked about a few weeks ago, has sealed us in God. This is a great gift by which we now have access to true wisdom revelation and enlightenment we're no longer blind to the things of the spirit to the things of god as we once were when we were in our sin did you catch that clarity that he gives us in verse 14 of first corinthians 2 14 the passage i just read the natural person that's the person still in their sin still under the wrath of god apart from christ the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god They're spiritually dead, the Scriptures would declare. Physically living, spiritually dead, depraved. He says, for they are folly to Him. When when a loved one you're praying for and hoping that they would come to know the saving grace of God and trust Jesus with their lives, when they just have a, a disdain for God, for the truths of God, the ways of God, will you see that that is their spiritual blindness at work. They they don't see and savor God. They're not spiritually awakened. They need to be reborn, as Jesus would say. That heart of stone has to be regenerated, made new by the sovereign work of God to see and savor the gospel. 
the things of God. Paul says that the natural man is unable to understand in his natural state. No, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit's own Lord, we have spiritual enlightenment, discernment, because of Christ's work and the power of the Holy Spirit now in and through us. We have this ultimately so that we can better know God. This is the greatest gift of deeper enlightenment. I want to make sure we see that. The greatest aim for wisdom is not an endless catalog of facts or insights into how the world works, even how God works, but that that wisdom in God would create in us a greater insight and understanding and access to Him that we would know Him, have relationship with. To know God is to know life. To know God is to know love, Scripture says. To know God is to know peace. To know the greatest thing one can know is God Himself. Christian, I ask you, do you get this? Do you see clearly the aim of your personal Bible study time, your commitment to Sunday corporate worship, to sit under your shepherd's teaching of the Word, uh, our, our gathering of the saints on midweek for Tuesdays or Wednesday nights as we work through the truths of God, is not mainly about horizontal things. The fellowship of the saints, the learning how to better navigate life, It's so that we can better know and cling to and enjoy God. Because when we know Him, when we savor Him all the more and worship Him, we will live for Him and serve Him and obey Him. We will honor Him. We will suffer for Him as the saints before us did in joy. Because our satisfaction is God, not our circumstances. It's been a joy to see so many who have been connected to Christianity for so many years miss this whole nother level. It's like there's just been this shallow wash of like how to have a better life and how to kind of get through our days. And there's not this growing and knowing of God. I'm so blessed by many who come to our church and who are growing in these truths and going, I know God, I worship God, I'm walking with God in a way I never was before. And it's changing my life. It's changing my priorities. It's changing my my days. Paul is praying that God would continue to flood our minds and hearts with his wisdom and discernment and enlightenment. This is first to know and cherish God. But what comes out of this is also a great blessing for us in this day. To have the true wisdom of God Think of how much we need that in the midst of the culture we live, in the midst of even just the deception even among quote-unquote Christian circles, churches that claim to be about the gospel but are doing very little to actually live out the truths of God. 
The deception that's all around and false truths that are proclaimed even in the name of Jesus. And so it is often that I'm praying for you, that our elders or shepherds are praying for you, that God would give you a great clarity and discernment as you navigate this dark and deceiving life, that you would cling to what is true and wise in God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Praying like Paul mentions later in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 14, that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Praying for you that you would recognize false teachers among you who would secretly bring in destructive heresies. 2 Peter 2.1 Praying that you would beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 7.15 Do you realize that? So often the Christian culture says, Oh no, don't, don't speak against this person or that person. They're sweet. Look at what they're doing. All these good things. Do you realize that's the deception of a wolf in sheep's clothing? That it looks on the surface like it's good and it's for God and there's these great things happening. But if it's not grounded in truth, in Scripture, unto the glory of God, it's not biblical. It's not God-honoring. It's deceiving. It's man-made. We pray for you that you would watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, that you would avoid them. Romans 16, 17. This is why we're we're constantly cautious that you would not be scouring the internet for answers. There's so much deception out there that you would vet authors and books that just walking into a Christian bookstore is still filled with a ton of nonsense and unbiblical things. Praying for you as Paul did for the saints in Ephesus and for the saints in Philippi for spiritual discernment for true knowledge of God, as Paul prayed in Philippians 1, 9-11, this is my prayer, that, you love, that your love may abound more and more, he says, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I'm heartbroken when I hear Christians go, it feels like what you're teaching or what's being said here is too hard. It's too much. It's too perfect. The standard is God's holy perfection. Hear Paul's words again. That we would approve what is excellent, not what is mediocre. And so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Church, do we long for the wisdom and the truth, the perfection of God, not settling for what is second rate and man made? Late theologian, pastor, teacher Charles Hodge says it this way The Apostles' Prayer, referencing the prayer here we're seeing in Ephesians 1. The Apostles' Prayer is for the Holy Spirit to dwell in them as the author of divine wisdom 
and as the revealer of the things of God, which insight into the things of the Spirit is connected with that knowledge of God in which eternal life essentially consists. If that old writing is a little confusing, let me just simply say it the way Jesus said it in his high priestly prayer to God in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know him? This is Paul's prayer for the saints. This is my prayer for you. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Look at what he prays for next. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Paul prays for a true and deep knowing God, for His revelation and enlightenment to be at work in the life of the believer. And next we read, he prays for the saints that they would know the hope to which God has called us. Now, what kind of hope is this? That Paul's praying for the saints to know. Is it fleeting? I'm hopeful and it's, and it's constantly scurrying away and I'm trying to grasp it. Or is it solid? Let me ask it this way. If God is perfect in all He does, and His election, as Paul has spent much time focusing on, salvation and adoption are based not on any of man's performance or ability, your election, your salvation, your adoption, not based on any of man's performance or ability, as some would convolute the Scriptures to say, but are only in God, as the Scriptures do say, then our hope, church, for glory with God is not uncertain. It is certain It is not fingers crossed kind of hope. It is rock solid and secure in the power of God kind of hope. Are you tracking with that? Paul wants the believers to know, hear it, know what is the hope to which he has called them. Listen carefully, church. Because these are the kinds of things that we can be guilty of saying we understand and that we truly hope in God, but we really don't get the strength or the certainty of that hope. And so there's this verbal declaration, but it's not really out of the heart and the mind that's grounded in confidence, certainty. 
But that's what Paul's praying for, for for the saints to have. Listen to Paul's words to the Romans and the certainty he wants for us, the saints, to have in the fact that God will finish what he started. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know. He didn't say, we think, we have our fingers crossed. No, we know. We're certain. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Oh, church, we're guilty of throwing this one around, even though we don't really believe it. In the midst of great heartache, of great storms, all of this is for my good, all of this is for His glory. We can be guilty of saying that, and we don't really believe it. Are you certain? Do you know? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you are truly elect, then in God's perfect time you are called, and then you are justified, and you will be glorified. It is not a maybe, it is certain. It will be done. Our Christian hope is grounded in this fact. So let me ask you, do you know, meaning you are certain, the hope to which He has called you? That that hope is not something floating and fleeting. The calling on your life will be finished in glory. That's the hope you have. And how are you so confident? Because it's, it's planned, it's done, it's persevered, and it's finished by the power of God, who is perfect. Batting average, perfect. Does not miss, does not lose any of his. Do you see that it is rock solid in that it is initiated, persevered, and completed in God's power and not yours or anyone else's. Paul doesn't just say that he wants them to be hopeful. Hey brother, you're, you're struggling and man, kind of down. Wish you wouldn't be as doubting and just be a little more hopeful. General hopefulness is not what Paul's praying for here. Many heathens can know what it is to be generally hopeful. No, the hope that Paul wants his brothers and sisters to in Christ to know is for that which God has called us to. 
What is he called us to? Salvation that is certain to end in glorification. Do you see it? Literally, do you see it? Amen? I can go back and do it all again. I want you to know. He says, know it. Know this rightly. It is hope to build your life on. Why? Because it is not temporary. It is not fleeting. It is not fingers crossed. It is not based on man's performance. Too often, even solid Christians around me over the years say, say the right things about these things. Even will teach the right things about these things. But when it comes to their own life, their hope is still too based on man and man's performance. It must be based on God. Your certainty in His perfect plan that He has called you, ordained you to this time to be attentive to what He has put before you. That your hope is in Him and not in man. I promise you, you begin to grab this and live this, it just changes everything. 1 Peter 1.3 calls it a living hope. That's guarded by the power of God. Titus 2.13 calls the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ a blessed hope. Hebrews 6.11 that the saints have the full assurance of hope until the end. Christian, is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You might say, oh, one of my favorites. But again, can you sing it? Can you say it? Can you teach it? Doesn't matter if you don't know it and live it. Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That you dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul prays that the saints would know this hope. I pray that you know this hope. Know it and build your life on it. Know it has entrusted it when everything is going wrong. Know it as in nothing lures you away. It is hope that is grounded in the perfection of God's plan and in the holiness of what He says He will do, He will do. Paul prays that the saints may know what is the hope to which He has called them. 
brother, sister in Christ, do you know the hope that you have been called by God to have in Christ? Talked often about the definition of hope has two sides. It's hope in and it's hope for. Is your hope in God? Is it in Christ? Who has all things in his grip? Who has ordained that we are his blood-bought people? Psalm 146.5 Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So just by way of evaluation unto a hope for confession of sin and repentance, what are you hoping in lately? In your, in your boss, in your kids, in your spouse, in the hope of a spouse, in the results of the doctor. What's your hope in lately? Do you see the distraction? Do you see the flesh lived out when your hope's not in Jesus alone? First Corinthians fifteen seventeen through nineteen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people to be most pitied. If Jesus did not rise from the grave. If he was not the firstborn of all of God who he would redeem, then we have no hope. Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The word disappoint here in the Greek means shame or disgrace. This hope doesn't disgrace us, it doesn't shame us, doesn't let us down. It doesn't say hope doesn't let us down because our family member remains healthy and doesn't get sick. It doesn't say hope doesn't let us down because we finally met the person of our dreams and we married them. It doesn't say hope doesn't let us down because our career is going great and there's a bigger income on the horizon. It doesn't say hope doesn't let us down because we have lots of friends and lots of cool stuff. Hope does not disappoint, does not shame, does not disgrace because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. It's based in God. And that's why it's rock solid. Church, we will not be disappointed. We will not be shamed if in Christ, if our hope is in Him. We hope for the things of God, the things He's promised to happen, they will happen. Let me ask you, how much do you, as a born-again Christian, focus on where you've been versus where you're going? You're constantly caught up in the past, in the things that have happened. Forgiveness unto healing, waking up to a new day, waking up to what God has purposed for you in Christ today and tomorrow. That's not where your focus is. Your focus is on... Woe is me. Here's how it's all wrong. Here's how it's not going my way. Here's here's my past. Here's my shame. I think your answer to that question about where your focus is often is linked to where your hope really is. We lose sight of that to which we've been called. Why? Because we're busy looking back. 
The late great pastor theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones once told the story of Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the commentator. He and a young lady had fallen in love with each other. She belonged to a higher level of society than he did. And although she had become a Christian and therefore regarded such things differently, her parents saw the disparity in social status as an obstacle to the marriage. This man, Philip Henry, they said, where has he come from? To this question, the future Mrs. Henry gave the immortal reply. I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. Christian, do you see that in yourself? When we stand on Christ and his righteousness, we are made new. Our sin is forgiven. And it matters far less where we've been, and it matters much more where we're going. To that which you have been called. Christian, is your hope in Christ and for the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's where Paul goes forth in his prayer. Look at what he says next in verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Called to glory. Called to true and lasting satisfaction in God. Paul wants the believers to have a lasting hope that they will enjoy the riches of knowing God. In the Old Testament, follow me, the inheritance God gave his people was the promised land. However, true Old Testament believers saw beyond the land to the landlord. I didn't write it. It's good, though. (laughs) Ultimately, it was God himself who was the greatest prize of their inheritance. The treasures of the temporary are just that. They're temporary. For the saints, those whom God has given saving faith and restored relationship with Him, hold most dear the riches of His glorious inheritance. The psalmist says it well, Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Colossians 1 11 and 12, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The light of heaven is not the sun, it's the glory of God. Paul himself found his way in faith to a clarity of longing and grip not for the temporary things or the things of the past but for the riches of what it meant to be in Christ and one day to reign in the kingdom of God. Listen to Paul's heart in Philippians 3, 8, 9, 7, 8, and 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Oh, be careful, brother, sister in the Lord, how quickly you verbally agree to that. Let me just point out, he says, I count all things. That means that person that's sitting next to you that you love so dearly is counted as rubbish in comparison to what it means to be his. You can have it. My soul is satisfied in God. It doesn't mean that they're rubbish. It means in comparison. God is so big and full of my joy and my satisfaction. It is these other wonderful gifts of God are like as rubbish in comparison. And yet, many who will say amen or who will like that will cling so hard to the temporary, even to the point where we look to God and say, no, you better not. Do you see how far away that is from where Paul's heart is here? <laughs> Philippians three thirteen through 14 later in that chapter, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Paul, how do you do this? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, to that which he has been called. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, the prize is God himself. It is not that there will no longer be suffering, pain, death, or sorrow. That will be our reality in the heavens. It is not that heaven will be magnificent and the feast will be like nothing we've ever tasted. It is not that we will be united in perfect harmony with the saints, our eternal family. These are wonderful, great things. All these things are amazing. The scriptures say they're beyond our imagination. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things are great. It will be better than we even know how to dream. But all these things are not the prize. Those things are the decorations on the cake. They're the music. They're the hot and ready pizza buffet. They're the pony rides at the party. That's all that stuff. These things are not the only one we will truly want more than anything else. What we really want is to be with the one whom the party is for. Amen? God is the prize. To know Him and to be with Him unhindered and full of glory. Oh, church family, we are His. And we get to be with Him forever in glory. The riches of His glorious inheritance of the saints, that's ours. It's to know and be with God forever. 
Oh, how rich we are in Christ. Do you see how rich you are, Christian? Not in money that can be stolen or burned. Not in cars or houses that wear out. Not in food or flavors that are enjoyed only for a moment and then digested and done. Not in relationships that can betray you, leave you, or die on you. We are rich because we are in Christ. Because you know God and will enjoy Him forever. This is Paul's prayer for the saints. That's my prayer for you today. Pray with me. Father, holy, perfect, and good, you are worthy of all of our lives. It all belongs to you. Lord, we are guilty of often making much of it about us, what we want, what will make us feel good or comfortable, the longings of our flesh. No, it is about You. It is for You. Thank You for the Spirit to bring forth true discernment and wisdom. To help us grow in knowing you. Thank you that our hope is not fleeting or fingers crossed, but it is fixed in that to which you've called us, that which your word is promised will be finished in glory. So therefore it is rock solid that our hope in you would be rock solid. That this inheritance of the saints is eternity with you. Oh, how great it will be. Oh, all the more reason why we leave this place not full in the belly of these good truths only to terminate on us, but, but so hungry to share them with others, so hungry to circle back and meet around the dinner table and with the family and with others to, to testify, to disciple that many more in your perfect providence would be saved and meet us at the table of the great feast that's all about you. We love you. We worship you. And I pray for anyone in this place that has only known these things to be folly because they've been outside of Christ, that today is the day by which you give them ears to hear and eyes to see. They see their sin and they confess it and they trust their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That they join the family for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.